everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 58. This time out, we're going to be looking at the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. Also, similar to when I covered the 1939 issue, I will be giving some information about the second season of the fair and talking about some other happenings that went on at the fairgrounds that are sure to be of interest to Superman fans. Before I get into that, though, I have got two new iTunes reviews. And I do want to apologize right up front because I really should have read these earlier. One was left near the beginning of December and the other in mid-January. I've been a bit busier lately in my non-podcasting life and have kind of gotten a little neglectful in checking for the new reviews, but I I really do appreciate them and and really do believe that they help people who are thinking about giving the show a try, so thanks to those who have taken the time to leave them, and and like I said, I, I really do appreciate them. The first comes from TBR Rocks, and it reads, This is a great show. Michael Bradley has an excellent delivery of clearly well-thought-out analysis of these wonderful old Superman stories. And it was also rated five stars. And I I thank you for the kind words, TBR. The second, which was also five stars, is from Salt Vegas, who wrote, I usually find Superman to be a very boring character, but Michael Bradley does an amazing job at making Superman fun and interesting. Highly recommended. I really like this one. Um, you hear people sometimes say that they find Superman boring. Uh, it's not something I necessarily agree with, obviously, but if people like myself or other Superman-related podcasters can, can make the character seem fun and, and less boring, then, then I'd say we are definitely doing our jobs. So thank you, Salt Vegas. Um, I'm really glad you enjoy the show and that you, you checked it out to begin with, even though... Superman isn't among your your favorite characters. Hopefully you'll be interested in checking out more Superman stories or even some of the other great Superman podcasts down the road. So thanks again to TBR Rocks and Salt Vegas, as well as all those who have left iTunes reviews. I really do appreciate it. I am going to take a quick break, and we'll be back for the regular part of the show. rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. So this episode, like I said, we are looking at the 1940 issue of New York World's Fair Comics. I covered the 1939 issue and gave some background on the conception and execution of the fair, as well as the comic itself, way back in episode 19. Despite modern reports that the 1939 issue didn't sell too well, and the fact that the issue's originator, 
editor Vince Sullivan was long gone from the company, DC decided to put out a second World's Fair tie-in comic when the 1940 season rolled around. It's not a number two issue. It's simply called New York World's Fair Comics 1940 issue. Like the first, it's a whopping 96 pages, 50% larger than the standard comic book at the time. But unlike the original, it's got a cover price of 15 cents. As you might remember, the 1939 issue was printed with a 25 cent price tag on the cover, but later stickers were added reducing the price to 15 cents. So here I guess they at least learned their lesson the first time around and decided to just to go and start out with the 15 cents. So that kind of makes me wonder if the 15 cent price tag didn't cause the issue to sell better even possibly meeting their expectations, or at least coming close enough to convince them that a second issue was warranted. Uh, but whatever happened, they, they did put out a second issue, so here we are. The issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth and was sold for the duration of the 1940 season of the fair, but first went on sale May 11, 1940, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. May 11th was the opening day of the 1940 season of the fair, so I would say that's probably correct. Our cover is by a brand new name to the podcast, artist Jack Burnley, and it shows, together, for the first time ever on a cover, Superman, along with Batman and Robin, the boy wonder. Our three heroes are seen standing on the world's fairgrounds in front of the Trilon and, and the Perisphere. They're all smiling, and Superman offers a grand wave to the reader. I love this cover. Like I said on Legends of the Batman when Michael Kaiser and I covered the Batman story in this issue, I know that part of the excitement is just seeing Superman and Batman and Robin together for the first time, particularly Superman and Batman, but I also love just how well rendered all three characters are. All three just, they just look tremendous and they're definitely very iconic golden age depictions of the heroes. In addition to the first public pairing of Superman and Batman, this cover is also significant in that it is one of the first published images of either character to be drawn by someone outside of their regular artist's studios. At this point, all Batman stories and covers had been done by Bob Kane and his stable of inkers, namely, to this point, Sheldon Moldoff and Jerry Robinson. With the exception of the Fred Gardner cover on Action Comics number 15, and possibly the headshot on the cover of the 1939 World's Fair issue, all Superman covers and stories had been done by Joe Schuster and the Schuster Shop, including Paul Loretta, Paul Cassidy, and Wayne Boring. But Jack Burnley was never a part of the Schuster Shop. He worked directly for DC and is the first artist outside the Schuster Shop to regularly work on Superman stories, which among other things, demonstrates DC's growing dominance over control of the character, which is something that's going to be more and more apparent over the next couple years' worth of stories, and, and really already is with the radio show you know, going on outside the comics. Uh, but Burnley had been working for King Features prior to this, doing, I believe, illustration fillers for newspapers and uh, the King Comics comic book. This is his first work for DC and really his first significant work for any comic book period. 
Burnley is going to go on to do quite a few stories for both Superman and Batman. Uh, this is his first time drawing either character, obviously, and I think he just knocked it out of the park on the cover here. And, and even more so, really, in the story that we're about to look at, but I will get into that in just a bit. As I noted on Legends, it's also interesting to compare this to the cover of the 1939 issue. There, the main image was a cartoon illustration of a child, and the inside features were shown in, in small circles down the right-hand side. But here, their three biggest heroes are front and center on the cover. If you haven't noticed by the fact that Superman and Batman are dominating the covers of their respective titles, DC is definitely catching on, or, or has caught on by this point, to the fact that people are picking up the books because of the characters and not because they are, you know, action stories or, or detective stories. The bottom of the cover as well plugs some of the other features in the book, including Sandman and Slam Bradley. Our Superman story inside was only 10 pages, compared to the normal 13 pages from Action Comics and Superman, or the 12-pager from the 1939 issue. It was written by Jerry Siegel, with art, like the cover, by Jack Burnley. It was untitled originally, but in recent years has been called Superman at the 1940 World's Fair. We begin with a three-quarter page splash showing Superman high above the World's Fairgrounds. His arms and legs are spread wide, looking almost like he's in a free fall. It's actually the exact same pose as one of the splashes from Superman number five. It's not the same image, but the pose is exactly the same. And below him, we get a we get a great shot of the fairgrounds with the Trilon and the Perisphere and many other buildings. Unfortunately, I don't know if these other buildings are actually other buildings that were at the fair, but still, this is just a, a great splash. And I like that in this, compared to the splash from the 1939 issue, that Superman appears to be leaping into the fairgrounds, opposed to leaping away from it. Was that intentional, or, or just a different way of drawing what is basically the same image? I don't know, but either way, I, I really do like it. We have a bit of introductory text here in the splash as well. Unlike our normal splashes, though, this one is story-specific. And it reads, Superman, dynamic foe of crime and injustice, uses his amazing speed and strength to defeat the sinister plans of a master jewel thief and his gang in a thrilling adventure that begins unexpectedly when Clark Kent and Lois Lane pay a visit to the New York World's Fair. Also notable here in the splash is that it contains the Superman logo type. Now, most splash panels to this point have had the stylized lettering, covers of... Superman have used it as well, obviously, and it's been seen in ads and and small on the covers of action comics and in the newspaper strips and so on. All of those logos have been hand-drawn by the artists, which resulted in uneven logos and just wide variances in the look of it, even though they were all based on the same basic style that Joe Shuster used in the splash of Action Comics number 1. Take a look sometime at the first five covers of Superman, and you'll see what I mean on that. Here, though, we get the first use of a neatened up and refined version of the logo that will really be used more or less from here on out. Who exactly did the 
cleanup and refinement on this logo has been lost to history, but the common consensus is that it was probably Irish Schnapp, a, a very long-time letterer and logo designer for DC Comics throughout the Golden and Silver Ages. Schnapp is also generally credited as designing the classic Action Comics logo type that we've seen on the covers of that book. Regardless of who did it, though, it's clearly based on the Schuster version with the name Superman and big block letters telescoping across the page and the uh, the kind of Art Deco-ish styled shadowing on the letters. This version of the logo will be used on books and stories and merchandise, and it'll be used all the way until the early 1980s when it's tweaked again for a slightly more modern look. It may seem rather insignificant noting the first appearance of a logo that really for all intents and purposes uh, style aside has been in use from the the very first issue but this is a major move for the franchise given how prevalent and and well known the Superman logo became and, and still is today I mean we're more than 70 years and 700 issues of Superman later and although it's been tweaked, we're, we're still seeing the same basic logo. And there are very few other characters that can claim that kind of longevity for their iconography. Moving on to the story itself, we begin in the offices of the Daily Planet, as editor George Taylor tells Clark Kent that he and Lois Lane are to do features on the New York World's Fair. Clark then tells Lois about the assignment, saying that Taylor wants her to cover the feminine slant, because, you know, she's a female reporter, so obviously that's all she can do. And after a snarky thought balloon from Lois, the two take flight the next morning and soon arrive in New York City. Clark and Lois tour the fairgrounds, marveling at the many wonderful exhibits and fascinating displays, when Lois points out that the famous Madras Emerald is to be presented at the House of Jewels later that evening for exhibition at the fair. Clark suggests that they stop for a drink, and while at the pavilion, he sees a suspicious figure he recognizes as Blackie Sarto, jewel thief. Lois laughs off the suggestion, saying that security guards wouldn't have let criminals on the grounds. But Clark explains that Sarto is a European crook who isn't known in the States. He says that four years ago, he covered a case where Sarto was a suspect, but released due to lack of evidence. Using his super hearing, Clark listens in as Sarto tells his associate that he plans on stealing the Madres Emerald when it arrives. Clark says he needs to alert the authorities at the fair, and Lois suggests that they follow Sarto and try to get the story. Clark protests, but Lois goes anyway, surreptitiously leaving her purse on the table as they leave. Once outside, she tells Clark that she left her purse, and as Clark goes back to get it, Lois follows after Sarto on her own. She follows Sarto out the gates and towards his hideout, but suddenly Sarto spins and grabs Lois, demanding to know why she's following him. Sarto then forces Lois into a waiting car, and he and his crony speed off. Meanwhile, Clark returns to where he left Lois, only to find her gone, obviously. Figuring she went after Sarto alone and is probably in danger, and it's nice to see that he's finally catching on to such things, Clark decides that this is a job for Superman. Checking the time, Superman realizes that Sarto should be heading towards the pier to snatch the emerald, and with an up, up, leaps into the air on his way to head them off. 
Back at his riverfront hideout, Sarto and his gang bind and gag Lois to deal with her later, and then head out to the pier. At 6.30 p.m. sharp, the jewel arrives, and as guards start to load it into a waiting armored car, Sarto and his gang don gas masks and toss gas bombs at the guards. And not just deadly gas bombs, mind you, but these are deadly lethal gas bombs. Because deadly bombs aren't enough. And lethal bombs are just a joke. If you really want to steal an emerald, you've got to use the deadly lethal gas bombs. Anyway, the bombs quickly do the trick, and the crooks start to make their getaway with the emerald. Superman, having watched this whole thing from a nearby rooftop, leaps down to the street below. After giving the crooks a bit of a head start, you know, just for fun, Superman streaks off after the car, easily catching up to it. Much to the surprise of the crooks inside, Superman then grabs the car and brings it to a dead stop. As the car stops, Sarto and his men leap from the car, machine guns ablazing, and firing directly at Superman's chest. The bullets have no effect, of course, and Superman quickly sets to the business of smacking the crooks around. Not going down without a fight, Sarto pulls one last deadly lethal gas bomb from his pocket and hurls it to the ground. You'll never take me to jail, he scowls. I'll take you all with me, to eternity! Superman, unaffected by the gas, quickly gathers up Sarto and his men, tossing them into a car, and then he hoists the car high overhead and leaps into the sky. Superman soon turns the unconscious thugs over to the police and offers to return the emerald to the fair personally. He then makes a quick pit stop to rescue Lois, and soon returns to the fairgrounds with both the Emerald and the Girl Reporter in his arms. The End. I'm going to start doing page-by-page notes for stories, uh, so I can get a little more in-depth on things, you know, rather than how I was doing it before. So, we start with page one. Uh, Editor Taylor is blonde here. When he's appeared before, he's been depicted as brunette, or I think at one point he was uh, gray or or white-headed as well, so that was kind of uh, a bit odd. Um, And we also have another oddity in that Clark and Lois go by plane to New York from Metropolis. In the 1939 issue, which was before Superman was said to have been operating out of New York State, they took a train to the fair. So traveling by plane is a bit odd. I, I don't know if this was just another geographical geographical quirk that is so common in these Golden Age stories, or, or if Metropolis is no longer supposed to be in New York State. Um, time will tell, I guess. On page two, Clark and Lois arrive in LaGuardia Airport in New York City. LaGuardia was brand new at the time, uh, having only been open for business the previous December. And maybe that's why they uh, opted to fly, so that they could show off the the brand new airport there in New York. I I don't know. Um, However, even though the airport is a real location, much like the Rainy Jewels from the 1939 comic, the Madres Emerald doesn't seem to be a real item, at least as far as I could find. On page 3, Lois mentions the Pinkerton Men, that were checking on criminals and, and not allowing them into the fair. This is a reference to the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which was a private security firm founded by Alan Pinkerton in the mid-1800s. I did a little bit of research, and I couldn't find anything that 
positively confirmed that the Pinkerton Agency did security work at the fair. I, I think they did, but I'm not positive. And, and it's probably so, given that they name-checked or, or name-dropped them here. But either way, it's definitely a uh, cultural reference from the time. On the same page, Clark says he covered Sarto's case four years ago, which would indicate that either he's been at the planet for four years, in which case you'd think Lois would be at least vaguely familiar with the case, or that Sarto or that Sarto or that Clark covered the case before he started working at the planet. But we've never seen any mention of Clark having a newspaper reporter's job before coming to the planet. Um, in fact, in the expanded origin from Superman number one, Clark Kamen specifically said he didn't have any experience. The origin is told in the newspaper strip also indicated Clark had no experience before coming to work for the, the, for the Daily Planet, or the Daily Star as it was. So this could possibly be a reference to Clark having some non-costumed adventures before actually taking on the cloak and shield of Superman. The comic book origin is vague, but the newspaper's telling of the origin certainly allows for some non-costumed adventures, which I, I really kind of dig that kind of thing. Skipping ahead to page 5, I'll talk more about the art in a bit, but the first two... The first couple of panels here, where the thugs are forcing Lois into the car and and then making their getaway, they're just really nice. Uh, there's a bit of a perspective issue as far as the car's driver is concerned, but the expressions on the characters, especially in the second panel, are, are just really nice. Page 6, the first panel here, shows Clark fully revealed as Superman. I'm not sure where he put his clothes, the, the previous page says he was in a deserted alley, so maybe he just hid them. Uh, we see a little trash can here behind him. He could have stuffed them down there or, or behind the trash can. I don't know. It, it's not really important. It just Ever since that story where the, the detective found his clothes in the alley, it kind of makes me curious where he's sticking his clothes that, so that that doesn't happen again. But we also see Superman holding Clark's watch in his hand, and I like that little bit. You, you don't always think what becomes of Clark's jewelry when he switches to Superman. Clark Kent wears a watch, but Superman obviously doesn't. So I like that we see Superman holding the watch here almost as if he you know took the watch off and then checked the time before taking off as Superman. Speaking of taking off, though, in the next panel, the narration reads, The Man of Steel zooms up over the great city. And we see Superman in midair saying, Up! Up! Now clearly the Up! Up! is inspired by the radio. He's been using it there since the earliest episodes. Uh, but this is the first time we have seen it in print. And also take note that, that the uh, narration says that Superman zooms up over the city. Make a note of that, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. There's a, uh, the, the third, I guess it's the third panel here uh, on the, the page, has another use of the S-Shield in the narration box, like we saw back in Superman number five. I'm not going to point it out every time it happens, but since Burnley's a new artist, plus one working outside the Schuster studio, I really wanted to make note of it, because it seems to be something that's carrying over from, you know, in a wide range of artists, and not just 
Paul Cassidy or, or, or Wayne Boring, you know, one or the other. And Lois looks great on this page, too, here. I mean, the, the art through this whole story is just absolutely beautiful. Page 7, here we have Sarto and his thugs using the <laughs> using the deadly lethal gas bombs. Uh, I talked about that a little bit already. Bombs can be both deadly and lethal, but only in the way that the Flash can be described as fast and quick. At the bottom of the page, we get a panel with a clear shot of the back of Superman's cape. The S on the cape has a yellow field with a fairly basic blue S. Both it and the S on the chest have reverted to being an equilateral triangle with a, with a fairly basic S rather than the more stylized version of the shield that he's been getting lately. And I would say that owes to the, the different artists uh, who probably only had the older stories as reference material. But then again, with the range of differences in the S's still to come, you know, maybe I'm off on that. It's also interesting that in the Chronicles reprint, at least, they have recolored it so that the S is completely yellow, uh, like it is in, in the modern-day Superman, or the pre, pre-New pre 52 Superman, I guess I should say. Speaking of art, though, page 8, I have a little bit of an artistic complaint here in that we don't see Superman you know, stopping the car. We see him running alongside it and then reaching out to grab it and then the next next panel cuts to inside the car with only the dialogue telling us that he's stopping it. So that's kind of disappointing as I like seeing Superman do his feats and I'm sure Burnley would have made a a really dynamic panel of him actually bringing the car to a halt. But on page 9, you know, again here, major credit to Burnley for making Sarto come off as even more of a sinister creep than a, a guy willing to take himself and his men out in order to evade Superman would normally be. Uh, this panel, see it's the one, two, three, fourth panel, it is excellently drawn. It, you, we've got a harsh light source coming from in front and, and slightly below Sarto, so we get this super creepy panel of his face. He actually reminds me a little bit of a mustacheless Vincent Price, which is kind of odd. But Siegel's dialogue here really adds to it, too. He says, You'll never take me to jail. I'll take you all to eternity with me. Just great stuff. And I liked seeing Superman save the criminals for a change. You know, stuffing them into a car, saving them from the deadly lethal gas, and and taking them to, to the police. A year ago, Superman would have left them to die from the gas. He would have grabbed the emerald and leaped off. But now we're past the Batman number one mark, so hopefully that means the uh, the less lethal Superman is going to start making more and more frequent appearances. So then we get to page 10, and we have a another plot hole here, because I'm not sure how Superman knew where Sarto's hideout was. He met up with Sarto and his gang at the pier, and only Lois had gone to their hideout, so... That's a a bit of a problem. It's interesting though seeing Superman after he gets back to the uh, to the, when he when he drops the criminals off at the authorities. It, it's interesting seeing Superman offer to return the emerald and and not have the authorities question it, given that he was a wanted man not long ago and and stories have regularly shown Superman being shot at by police. Superman is well on his way to becoming that smiling, you know, hands-on-his-hips, accepted people's hero. 
granted, we still got a ways to go, but finally we are we are on the road. But after Superman rescues Lois, he sweeps her into his arms, the music swells, and, well, the music doesn't swell, but in my head it swelled. And, uh, and then he heads back to the fair, and the narration reads, Over the city flies Superman, with Lois and the jewel box in his arms. Over the city flies Superman. After he returns the emerald to the fair, Superman takes off again, and the narration tells us that Superman soars away into the sky. So we have Superman flying to the fair and soaring away. Added to the fact that earlier it said he zoomed away into the sky. We're still going to get places where it puts forth the idea that Superman is merely leaping. But we've turned a corner in that, in this comic anyway, they're making no bones about the fact that he's flying. And I believe, too, that this is the first place in print that they've actually used flight as a verb in describing what Superman does. There was the, I think it was a Sunday newspaper strip that talked about how Superman stopped his upward flight. Uh, He had leapt into the air with a crook and did some sort of flip to send himself back downwards. But this is different in that it actually says he's flying, where in the the Sunday strip it, it was very clear that he was leaping up and then falling back down. So I thought that was very cool, uh, but not to mention extremely historically noteworthy and clearly influenced by the very popular radio show's depiction. We've definitely been seeing a lot of influence from the radio in the comics, with Superman taking the, the greater strides towards flight being the most obvious. Speaking of the radio show, though, we get a very classic ending here. I usually refer to this as the Fleischer-esque ending because it reminds me of how those old shorts quite often ended, but it's the classic ending of Lois, you know, thinking she's got the upper hand, but Clark one-upping her, thanks to Superman, wink. It's nice seeing, too, that Clark referenced that he interviewed Superman, rather than just reporting the story sans mention of Superman's involvement. It's been mentioned that Clark interviewed Superman before in the newspaper strip, but I think that this just might be the first time he's interviewed him in the comics. If it isn't the first, it's certainly among the first, because, you know, Superman is still, even though he's working his way towards being that public hero, he's still, at this point, fairly distant in his dealings with the public. But I'm kind of surprised that the story didn't end with the characters telling us how great and awesome the fair is and and that we should all visit. Uh, That seems to be how a lot of the stories ended, and not only in, in this World's Fair issue, but the last. But overall, just just a really great story. This felt, and if I remember right, I, I felt like this about the Batman story when Mike and I covered it on Legends of the Batman. But it felt like a very classic, very iconic Superman story from this era. There's really nothing out of the ordinary about it. It just feels like a quintessential Golden Age Superman story. You know, we had Clark and Lois... Superman, we had gangsters after some phlebotanum, we had thugs abducting Lois, and then Superman rescuing her. Really all it needed was Superman busting through a wall and maybe a a giant robot menacing Metropolis, and and it very well might have had everything you need in in a Superman story from this era. The art is just absolutely fantastic. As much as I raved about the cover, the interiors are even better. Jack Burnley brings such a different look to the strip, 
but one that still, in a lot of ways, evokes Joe Schuster in, in the figure designs. All of the figures look great. They're really expressive and, and easily distinguished from one another without being cartoonish. Clark and Lois look great. Lois is beautiful with these kind of classic movie star looks. Um, Schuster, at least in his early days, gave Lois that same kind of Hollywood star beauty. But it's Burnley doesn't do it quite the same way Schuster does, or, or did. Um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, to describe in audio form. Their styles are clearly different, but seem to come from the same influences, if that makes any sense. Uh, I'll, I'll be sure, like always, to put scans in the show notes, so just check it out and uh, let me know what you think about Burnley's art. Burnley's Superman here is strong and athletic. He's not um, as barrel-chested as some of the more recent stories have depicted Superman, but he's still clearly athletic uh, in his build. And I love the detail that Burnley's got in his art in the story. Background details and, and textures often fell by the wayside with the art that we've seen to date. And there were a lot of reasons for that, but seeing Burnley just go all out here is a very, very welcomed change. I can't wait to see or to get to more of Burnley's stories, which really aren't too far around the corner, actually. All in all, though, just a classic story, a you know, great art, and I just two thumbs way up for this one, and I really, really hope that we get more like it down the road. This story has been reprinted three times. First in Superman, The World's Finest Archives, Volume 1, then in DC Comics' Rarities Archive, and finally in Superman Chronicles, Volume 3. This is the final story in the third Chronicles volume, by the way, so as hard as it is to believe, we close the book on yet another chapter, and we'll move to the fourth volume with the next comic. invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. As I mentioned when I covered the first World's Fair issue, the DC Rarities Archive reprints the entire issue, not just the Superman strip. It's got both World's Fair comics, as well as the big All-American comic book from 1944. It's definitely worth picking up if you can find it on the cheap and want a fairly broad-spectrum sampling of Golden Age DC comics. The other features found in this issue of the, of the World's Fair comic 
as well as the reprint, include Red, White, and Blue, Slam Bradley, Zaytara, The Hour Man, The Sandman, Johnny Thunder, and the dynamic duo of Batman and Robin. Both the Red, White, and Blue and Slam Bradley strips were written by Jerry Siegel as well, showing just how ubiquitous and, and popular Siegel strips were at this time. If you're interested in hearing more about the Batman story from the issue, check out uh, episode 15 of Legends of the Batman. That story wasn't quite as good as the Superman story, but it it wasn't a a terrible story either. Except for the part where Batman breaks the guy's neck. But anyway, the issue also has a Hanko the Cowhand story, and a reprint of A Day at the World's Fair with Jim and Jane from the 1939 issue. Though, for some reason, the strip here is retitled At the World's Fair, rather than A Day at the World's Fair. So, perhaps they were trying to encourage folks to spend more than just, you know, one day there. Additionally, the issue has several filler pieces, as well as a text piece. It's like four pages long, telling, you know, all about the cool stuff that can be found at the fair. For the 1940 season of the fair... In order to better reflect the turmoil overseas, the theme was changed to For Peace and Freedom, and there were some new attractions added and and some removed. I skimmed through the text piece, but nothing really jumped out at me. What strikes me about this issue, compared to the 1939 one, is that it spends far less time hyping attractions at the fair, instead choosing to focus more on the stories and characters. While the fair does play a role in, I think, all the stories, the text piece is really the only additional feature that talks at length about the fair, where in the 1939 issue, there were a lot of, you know, the the Fantastic Facts-type fillers hyping different attractions. According to Roy Thomas in his introduction to the DC Rarities Archive, the 1940 season of the fair was significantly toned down, It seems the war brewing overseas caused tourism and and funding from Europe to severely decrease or, in some cases, dry up entirely when several nations' exhibits didn't reopen in 1940. As Thomas wrote in that introduction, poor Poland, for instance, no longer even existed for all intents and purposes. And countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, and even France were conquered even as the fair was going on. Um, According to other sources, the Czechoslovakia and Denmark exhibits, likewise, didn't reopen in that second season. And there were other events that marred the fair's second season, uh, like a bomb that killed Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha, two members of the New York Police Department bomb squad. In the afternoon of July 4th, a suitcase was discovered inside the British Pavilion, and once moved to a safe location, you know, away from the crowds, Lynch and Socha tried to defuse the bomb, but it exploded, killing both of them instantly. The NYPD commissioner, Louis Valentine, praised their heroism, but sadly the bombing remains unsolved, even to this day. The fair's promoters tried various things in order to combat the dropping attendance, including initially lowering the price of admission to 50 cents for adults rather than the 75 cents that it was in 1939. Later, they hit on the idea to promote the fair by adding a theme to certain days. And among these themes were Boy Scouts Day, Girl Scouts Day, Model Boat Day, (laughs) Mineral Day, 
And most important to this podcast, Superman Day. According to Anthony Tallinn, Superman Day was the idea of Alan Duke Duchovny, who, as I mentioned in previous episodes, was a press agent for Superman Incorporated and had a big part in the development of the radio show. Duchovny conceived the idea in part to help publicize the New York World's Fair comic book and ultimately arranged for Macy's Department Store to co-sponsor the day's events along with DC. Superman Day was held Wednesday, July 3rd, 1940. It was the first Children's Day at the fair since New York City public schools had closed down for the summer. Admission was dropped to a dime that day, as it was on all Children's Days, in hopes of drawing an even larger crowd. And it seems to have worked, too, according to a 1941 article printed in the Saturday Evening Post that reported that Superman Day broke attendance records for any single children's event with 36,000 children coming to the fair that day. The day's events included celebrity appearances and athletic events. There was a balloon launch and contests. They had broadcasts of that day's episode of the Superman radio show, music, fireworks, and even a parade led by Superman himself. According to promotions from the World Fair, the parade consisted of elephants, floats, midget cars, clowns from the uh, Jimmy Lynch Daredevil show, which was also known as Jimmy Lynch's Death Dodgers, stars from Broadway's The Great White Way, and kids dressed in Superman costumes. During the parade, they were it was said that they launched 10,000 balloons. And again, according to promotions, 150 of those balloons contained coupons for free Superman-centric prizes. I wasn't able to find any information on what those prizes were, but it would not surprise me to learn that they were free copies of the, the New York World's Fair comic or, or perhaps issues of Superman or, or action comics. But as for the parade itself... I mentioned that it was promoted to be led by Superman himself. I found a photo, which I'll be sure to post uh, at greatcrypton.com in the show notes, of the actor dressed as Superman atop what appears to be a parade float. The name of the actor who played Superman at the fair may have been lost to history. Many websites and, and even a few print resources credit the actor as being an actor by the name of Ray Middleton though doubt remains that it was actually him. Middleton was a stage actor who had a few very minor screen roles prior to 1940, and following 1940, he went on to originate the role of Frank Butler opposite Ethel Merman's Annie Oakley in Annie Get Your Gun. He also starred in the stage version of South Pacific and Man of La Mancha, and had several bit parts in a variety of movies and television shows. Photos of the World's Fair Superman were published in two issues of Amazing World of DC Comics, a magazine-sized in-house fanzine published by DC for 17 issues and, and then one special in the mid to late 1970s. The actor in those photos doesn't resemble photos that I've seen of Middleton that were taken in the years you know, around the fair. Ray Middleton did for a fact play a part in Superman Day, which I'll get to in a minute, but it's my belief, with the information available to me, 
that wires have gotten crossed about his involvement and that it wasn't him in the costume. Regardless of who played the part, though, this is said to be the first time an actor publicly portrayed the Man of Steel in costume. The DC Vault, which was released in 2008, contained a color photo of the World's Fair Superman, and one of the few that I've ever seen, because color film was very expensive and, and rarely used uh, by amateurs back in 1940. Superman's costume is your basic Superman costume. It's got the blue bodysuit, the red trunks, the red cape and boots, and then a yellow belt. The cape does not tuck into his shirt collar, as it you know has most often showed to do in the comics to this point. Instead, it wraps all the way around his neck and then fastens in front and then drapes over his shoulders. Lengthwise, it comes down to just a little below his knees. It's actually, in that respect, quite similar to the, the cape Kirk Allen would later wear in the serials. As I said, the boots are red. They're really not very spectacular looking, to be honest. I imagine that they were specially made. I mean, well, the entire costume was, was special made, no doubt. But they look, they kind of look like cheap leather boots, to be, to be rather blunt about it. They do lace up in the front, which is kind of cool. Some people have compared these to the boots that Superman wore in the earliest issues of Action Comics, but I would actually describe them as being closer to Superman's traditional boots, just with laces in the front. The S on, on his chest is probably the most radical departure from what we're used to. It's an inverted black triangle with a red border and a red S in a thick serif font. But then above the S, in big block letters, is the name Superman. Something added, you know, no doubt to help people, to help introduce the character to people who might not be avid readers of the comic books or newspaper strips. All in all, given that it was 1940 and that this was the very first time they'd ever officially dressed someone as Superman, it's really not a bad costume. It's a little frumpy, and, and the big Superman printed on the uh, above the S makes it look a bit like a Halloween costume. But in 1940, I mean, you can imagine the excitement kids had at seeing their favorite character in the flesh for the very first time. They'd read his comic book stories. They'd read his newspaper serial. They'd heard his radio adventures. And here he was, Superman, the man of tomorrow, standing right in front of them. That that just had to be awesome. The Superman radio show was broadcast twice that day at the fair. First at 11.15 a.m. and then repeated at 12.45 p.m. Many sources report that it was a live broadcast. However, I've never heard or, or found any information about a special radio episode done just for the fair. Since the show was still transcribed at that point, it was more than likely just a quote-unquote, live airing of that day's regular episode, which would have been part five of Hans Holbein's, or Holbein's, I'm sorry, Doll Factory, uh, a storyline that will be given a closer look probably around episode 66 or so. During Superman Day, there were also various athletic events held for kids. Boys and girls were divided into two classes each, ages 8 to 11 and ages 12 to 14. The boys' events included a 50-yard dash and a 50-yard obstacle course, while the girls' events were a 25-yard dash and a rope-skipping contest. 
prizes for the winners were advertised to, to include gold, silver, and bronze medals for the boys, and gold, silver, and bronze charms for the girls. Another highlight of Superman Day was the America's Superboy and Supergirl contest. Apparently, following morning registration for the contest, there was a series of events, and soon 15 boys and 15 girls qualified as finalists, and eventually the judges selected winners, which were 15-year-old William Aronis of Astoria, Queens, for the Superboy title, and 11-year-old Maureen Reynolds of Manhattan for the Supergirl title. According to promotions, judges for the event were to be Eleanor Holm, who was an Olympic swimmer, Buster Crabb, best known for his portrayals of Tarzan, Flash Gordon, and Buck Rogers, animal collector Frank Buck, and actors Ray Middleton and Lucy Monroe. A July 4, 1940 article in the New York Times, however, names the judges as theater producer Morris Guest and bodybuilder Charles Atlas, along with Ray Middleton, Lucy Monroe, and Frank Buck. The article doesn't mention Holm or Crabb, so it's possible that there was a last-minute switch in the judges. Regardless, though, all of the contest judges, with exception of Charles Atlas, who was a the guest of honor at the fair that day, seem to have already been involved with the fair in some capacity. Both Eleanor Holm and Buster Crabb starred in Billy Rose's Aquacade. Frank Buck's animal collection was on display at the fair, and Ray Middleton and Lucy Monroe were both starring in American Jubilee, which was a historical pageant that had been revived, especially for the 1940 season of the fair. And Morris Guest was involved with a show called Morris Guest's Little Miracle Town with the world's greatest midget artistes. The Superboy and Supergirl contests were apparently only to be open to kids ages 8 to 14, but Aronis was 15 when he won, a fact that caused at least one parent to become a little upset, according to the New York Times article I mentioned earlier. It read in part, The awarding of the title Superboy was not without some dissension. The judges looked and looked. Hurried conversations took place, and they picked William Aronis, 15 of Astoria, 160 pounds and 5 feet 8 inches tall. When William stepped out to receive his trophy, an irate parent turned to the judges and said, That boy is 15. My boy, Willie, is 13. No satisfaction forthcoming. She left the stage in a huff. (laughs) And I kind of found that kind of funny. Why he won if he was over the age, I, I, I don't know. But regardless, William Aronis was named America's Superboy. A few years ago, Aronis contacted the Superman Through the Ages website. In his letter, Aronis said that for winning the contest, he was given a trophy, which, from photos, appears to be a good two or two and a half feet tall. And he wrote that after the event, he visited the office of Superman Comics and met the authors. He didn't specify in his letter whether he actually met Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. It may well have been uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster were both still living in Cleveland at this point, so it you know it may well have been that he met some of the other artists on the title, or you know Harry Donenfeld and, and Jack Leibowitz. Uh, he did write in his letter that there was an entry coupon for the contest on the back of a comic book. However, that could be a case of him, you know, misremembering things. 
There's been no such coupon in the comics we've covered to this point, and in a quick look through the comics published before the event, I didn't see a coupon there either. So perhaps it was in a magazine or somehow attached to the World's Fair comic when it was bought at the fair. I I just don't know. I tried to do a little more research to try and find if Mr. Aronis is still alive today, and I didn't turn up anything. However, I did find out that he is apparently adopted, which I thought was kind of neat given Superman's status as an adoptee. I also tried to track down information on Maureen Reynolds, the Supergirl winner, but had no luck finding anything on her whereabouts following the contest. The use of the terms Superboy and Supergirl in the contest here does quite obviously predate the publication of any characters by those names. Jerry Siegel pitched a Superboy strip chronicling the adventures of Superman as a youth as early as November 1938, but it was turned down. Siegel then repitched the idea in December 1940 and was again turned down. And I can't help but wonder if the use of the term Superboy at the contest wasn't one of the factors that spurred Siegel into, you know, again pitching the idea for the Superboy strip. I have no evidence to back that up, but it seems like a a definite possibility in my mind. Other events uh, at the fair that day included performances by the Woodling Southland Singers, the World's Fair Band, and the Oddbaj Men's Chorus. There was also a fireworks show that evening and a baseball school session hosted by members of the Brooklyn Dodgers, including pitcher Tex Carlton, catcher Babe Phelps, and second baseman Pete Koskarat. For you baseball fans out there, the Dodgers that year went on to finish second place in the National League, 12 games behind the Cincinnati Reds, who went on to beat the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. That would be the Reds' last series championship until the Big Red Machine era of the, of the 70s when they won back-to-back titles in 1975 and 1976. But the Detroit Tigers won the American League by only one game over the Indians, whose hometown is, of course, Cleveland, just to bring it back to Superman. Also at the fair that day, George McManus, the creator of the newspaper strip Jigs, was on hand. Not only was he involved with the parade, but there were a couple of events centered around him and his strip, but nothing to the extent that that was done for the Man of Steel. Speaking of Superman, though, Jerry and Bella Siegel, Joe Schuster, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz and his family were all in attendance at the World's Fair for Superman Day. According to an article at the Superman homepage, MC Gaines was there as well. Since Duke Duchovny arranged the whole thing, it would follow that he was there in some capacity, but I couldn't locate any secondary sources to confirm his attendance or that of MC Gaines. If anyone out there has any additional information about Superman's involvement in the World's Fair or Superman Day or knows where I might be able to find out more, I'd really be interested in hearing from you. Just drop me an email or or leave me a post on the website or message me on Facebook or Twitter. That's actually a request that applies to anything brought up on the show. I mean, I'm always interested in learning more about the things I talk about here. But Superman and the World's Fair has really piqued my interest as it was yet another huge step in Superman becoming the globally known icon that he is today. Uh, There's a lot of what I believe to be 
misinformation out there. So any source could, you know, possibly lead to figuring out the truth of of what is really a very historical event in the history of Superman. This is the voice of the randomizer. Do you hear me, Earthman? You gave me your numbers and forced me to pick one. For that, you must face the consequences. Each week, I will make you review a random comic book. Do you hear me, Earthman? A random comic book. Yes, each week on the 20 minute long box I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection, completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the Super Compressed podcast for the decompressed, written for trade age. Join me, Steve Lacey, each week at 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes. Get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. I will be covering the other books that were out when this issue first went on sale when I look at the May issue of Action Comics, which will be in episode 60. So that brings this episode to a close, folks. I want to thank you all for joining me. Next time, we'll be returning to the awesome world of newsprint for a look at the 14th storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. Until then, please feel free to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes. Even if you don't normally check out the show notes, definitely do so for this episode to check out the amazing Jack Burnley artwork from this story as well as a couple photos of, of Superman as he appeared at the fair. The costume may be... A little, well, not quite what we're accustomed to in the comics at this point. And, and, it's, and certainly not with the more recent Superman costumes. But it's, it's amazingly historic. At the site you will also find the show's iTunes link, as well as the RSS feed. Both can be used to subscribe to the show directly. If you use Facebook or Twitter, you can follow the show on both sites. I post on both sites whenever I have a new episode or show-related news or or other links of interest. So 
Please follow the show on the social media network of your choice, and links to the show's pages can be found at the website as well. If you have feedback or other comments on the show, you can contact me via the website, the social media networks, or through the email address at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I really do love hearing from listeners, so be sure to fire up your email and drop me a line. Also, don't forget the Superman homepage as well as the Superman Podcast Network. Notices are posted on both sites whenever there's a new episode out, and they have all sorts of other Superman-related content for you in the meantime. And last but not least, there is Green Lantern's Light, my other podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. so be sure to check that out as well. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Twenty minutes. That ought to give me time enough to get out of earshot. What was that he said about sheet steel three inches thick? Uh, (laughs) You're a liar, Wolf. Two and a half at the most. Look at those walls bend. Well, you might have kept Clark Kent in a vault like this, but not Superman. Uh, There goes the concrete. And still more steel. Well, I'll just put my foot through that. And that's that. Now, up the stairs. I won't go out in the street. Attract too much attention. Just up to the roof for an easy takeoff. Oh, what's this? A skylight. (laughs) And padlocked. Here goes. (sighs) Out into the night in the fresh air. One jump and we're up. Up. And away. (laughs) 